The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So today, I would like to offer some reflections that a little bit build off of what Mario Line offered last week, which is ways of working with the kalashas, the torments, poisons, defilements, pick your unhelpful English translation, um, in our minds and in the world. Some of the Buddha's words about working with difficult times in society. And um, I'm going to start, as sometimes I like to, with a myth. I'm a big fan of the ancient Buddhist myths as teaching stories. And this one is called The Lion's Roar of the Wheel-Turning King. I'm not going to talk about the whole thing. It's actually quite long. But the arc of this myth is that for seven generations, this ancient kingdom, ancient even to ancient India, so very, very old kingdom, was ruled by a succession of deeply moral, wise kings. These kind of kings that put the well-being and the welfare of their subjects above their own, and that practiced very sincere dharma or other forms of spirituality. And under these enlightened rulers, ancient society thrived. There was economic well-being, there was peace, prosperity, general sense of happiness. Neighboring kingdoms were incorporated into the kingdom based on the sheer moral strength and popularity of the ruler, recognizing that this first kingdom had a more benevolent society than they did. So that's how the myth goes. For seven generations of kings, this happened. And then, and then we come to the unfortunate eighth king. And he takes succession. His father goes off in robes to become a spiritual practitioner when he retires. And this king does not follow the same kind of wisdom as his predecessors and has policies that first lead to poverty and exacerbate poverty, and then begins practicing capital punishment in kind of a capricious way, a very unpredictable way. And as the myth goes, this starts a degradation of society. People see stealing, they're inspired to steal. People see killing, they're inspired to kill. And it just devolves gets worse and worse and worse until society is pretty much unraveled, things are in complete chaos, and the few remaining people with their wits about them flee and hide in the forest. When things die down, these people come out and find each other alive and are overjoyed. You survived this, you survived, we survived, what can we do to change things? And in the Buddha's teaching, what they decided to do was like, okay, this lawlessness, this just didn't work. Collectively, let's practice ethical behavior. And they made themselves basically a version of the precepts that many of you are very familiar with. 
not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to engage in sexual misconduct, not to engage in harsh or divisive speech, and so on. I don't remember any mention of intoxicants, to be honest with you, in this story. So they they gather together and they start to do this. And as the myth goes and the Buddha's telling, this provides the seedbed for society to regenerate. And gradually, over successive generations, it becomes more and more stable, happier, more and more prosperous. And eventually, another enlightened ruler emerges from that field of people being good to each other, practicing kind of the basic virtues that you'd expect or certainly hope of any neighbors. So there was this ripple effect of their goodness that happened, even in the most dark of times. And it was truly just completely anarchy at the worst of it. And this ripple effect shifted the overall group gestalt, if you will, this understanding of what was possible and what was right to do, just like seeing the examples of people killing and stealing had provided an unhelpful example of what to do. This, um, this positive effect has different terms in psychology and sociology, but there's the, the notion of contagion, emotional contagion, and there's beneficial emotional contagion. Seeing acts of kindness, generosity, heroism actually induces a certain kind of mind or heart state known as moral elevation. It's quite inspiring to see and to be. Perhaps each of you can think of something in your own life where you've seen someone do something good for someone else and it just has that little spark in the heart or a little moment of feeling good. And scientists have documented this too. There's a kind of a pay-it-forward effect, if you will, a ripple effect. One of the first studies I ever heard about was someone actually tracked um, people who would pay for the toll back when we actually paid tolls and didn't just have our licenses, um, our um, license plates photographed. They would pay the toll for the person behind them, and someone would track the ripple effect in the cars of how many times that would happen, how many cars it would last. And then in another study, there's two of them here that sort of compete for my favorite. I think I'll go with the hot cocoa study. Scientists had volunteers distribute hot chocolate to random strangers at an ice skating rink in cold. I don't remember where it was, but somewhere they got cold enough for a natural ice skating rink. And they tracked then through sort of a self-report later in the day, how that person perceived others and how they interacted with others. And there were two conditions. One, they were just sort of handed the hot cocoa. You know, no real explanation, no real particular warmth, just kind of neutral, hey, here you go, this is free. In the other one, the other condition, the volunteer expressed kindness, warmth, just for a few moments, made a little connection and those people were way more likely to act in generous and kind ways for the rest of that day. So ripple effect, 
ripple effect. When I first got back from Burma, now over 10 years ago, I had been ordained as a nun, I'd been practicing intensive metta and vipassana, insight meditation there. And I came back with a wide open heart and very, very short hair and was seeing the world quite differently. And remember being able to see so clearly this kind of conditionality of kindness rippling through interactions and people. It was just beautiful. And it was at that point in my own life that I, I knew I wanted, I already knew I wanted to dedicate my life to the good, but seeing that, that influenced how I showed up as a person. What we put out in the world matters, right? So it really shifted something. Which brings me to the second um, set of teachings that the Buddha offered within this, um, sort of after this myth, he talks to his practitioners. Because so far, the advice in the myth, the teaching in the myth is aimed at normal everyday people, not practitioners or meditators, but just anyone. Anyone can practice ethically and have that have a ripple effect, right? You don't need to be a card-carrying Buddhist for sure. You don't need to have a religion of any kind to do that. But then he talks to his monks and his nuns about what they can do to fruitfully respond when things are maybe a little chaotic or a lot chaotic or not so great in the overall atmosphere. And his first bit of advice was to stay with your own field, your own pasture. The Pali word for this is gochare. It is actually literally cow pasture. The word for cow is embedded in the word. This idea of ancestral homeland is also another nuance. And the Buddha says, stay with your own ancestral homeland. Stay with your own pasture. Take care of yourself. And that field literally is the field of mindfulness. That's the simile he draws over and over in the ancient suttas. So awareness itself, the field of awareness itself is home. To stay rooted in home. And then he goes on to advocate that practitioners, as practitioners, we cultivate our own inner wellspring of well-being as a way to, he didn't say this, but I will, survive and thrive even in difficult times. That's the subtext of the teaching. And this inner wellspring of well-being, he, he says it consists of five areas, wealth, lifespan, beauty, happiness, and power. And the Buddha likes to play around with words, right? So these don't just mean what you might think they mean. If we think of worldly wealth, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about cultivation of beautiful states of heart and mind, known as the immeasurables or the Brahma-viharas, metta, loving-kindness, karuna or compassion, 
mudita, or empathetic, altruistic joy and equanimity. And these, these, he says, are the true wealth within. And you can check it out for yourself, right? I know for me, I've been in very different financial circumstances over the arc of my life, from being kind of poor as a kid to arcing through a period of quite a lot of prosperity and now a more, um, shall we say, chosen simplicity, given my um, dedication to the Dharma. And happiness or unhappiness had remarkably little to do after basic functions were met in life. You know, the, the bottom layers of the pyramid, Maslow's hierarchy, were met. The happiness had much more to do with state of heart and state of mind than external circumstances. That's inner wealth, according to the Buddha. And then you won't be surprised by what beauty is, given what I've been talking about so far, but the Buddha talks about beauty as being inner ethical integrity. That that's true beauty. There's other similes in the ancient discourses that liken the beauty of an ethical person to the scent of a flower wafting on the breeze. Maybe you can't quite see it, but you sense it, and it has an impact. Lifespan, this is an interesting one. So there is a bit, this is after all a myth, about cultivating um, enough mental potency to have a longer life, like literally. However, that's not the main emphasis that the Buddha gives. In the way that he talks about it, lifespan has to do with the amount of enthusiasm, energy, inquiry, curiosity we bring to each moment. Which I was just talking, um, I saw my brother-in-law, my sister and their kids over the weekend and was asking about um, my brother-in-law's dad, who's well into his 80s. And he's doing great. He's super engaged. He's writing his, I don't know, seventh novel or something like that. And is just, you know, his health isn't great, but the man is delighted to be alive. That's lifespan, right? They call it health span now sometimes. And then... Happiness is correlated with the settledness of being absolutely present in meditation, whole, unified, samadhi. Not necessarily, we're not necessarily talking about rarefied states of, of samadhi here, but a unification with the moment, that kind of flow state, which for me, I can speak personally, some of the happiest moments of my life have been in flow states of one or one kind or another tends to be a quiet happiness, unless you're into, I don't know, extreme snowboarding or something like that. And then the last one, power. In this Buddha teaching of the Buddha, power is the power of an awakened heart, of a freed mind. That that, that ability to let go, not to cling, not to be sucked in by 
all the ways our minds love to make things worse and instead simply relate from this free, open place, that's power. And you can check it out for yourself as to how that maps for you. It has made a huge difference in my life, that capacity to lift off of the obsessions of the mind, or for that matter, sensual obsessions, chocolate, ice cream, whatever it is. Pick your favorite. It's probably not kale. So the Buddha, in this teaching about this grand, just massive arc of society, kind of devolving into nothing, worse than nothing, talks about these as being the ways to be islands unto ourselves in our own pastures and exemplars for other people at the same time. This is not a... um, He's not advocating proselytizing per se, but more modeling something. And then talks about, and this is from a different teaching, um, from Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses. I will teach you what is more harmful than harm, which is to not only cause harm, but to encourage or inspire others to cause harm. And I will teach you, he says, what is more beautiful than beautiful. And that... That is to be of benefit and prompt or inspire others to be of benefit. So here there is another layer, right? There's cultivating the highest happiness of inner freedom as a possibility. And for me, that's being happy to just be on a path, really. You know, and sometimes you get glimpses of the mountain ranges or the ocean, and other times you're slogging through the rocks and the mud. And then this other dimension of it, which is to practice this internal beauty and inspire, prompt, encourage, allow others around us, if they wish. There is this. koan of not exactly, you know, none of us can control another person. And this kind of seedbed, this field of goodness has its own power, its own kind of potentiality that it puts out into the world. So those are my thoughts today. And um, I had a couple of poems, but um, the book is an inconvenient location to weave them into the talks, so the talk's a bit shorter than usual. Uh, Your comments, questions, um, insights of your own, experiences of your own are all very welcome. At Andrea's suggestion, I'm going to leave the recording on unless someone would like it paused, in which case just flag me in the chat. Or, ver- or let me know somehow and I will pause it so that your voice isn't recorded. Some of the regulars here like to listen when they can't make it. 
and uh, the conversation's useful. So please take what works, leave the rest, and share anything you like. How about Peggy and then Stuart? Okay. Um, it all works, and I'm so grateful that I logged in today and get to hear this. Um, and just hearing you talk about it inclines me towards more generosity. Um, I was thinking, sometimes I volunteer, and I, I think that's one of the reasons, actually, because I, doing that, I come around other people who are, are more inclined to be giving and um and it just makes me smile it warms my heart and um i've actually taken to before i go to bed to just think of kindnesses that i witnessed during the day to just give my heart a smile and i also wanted to say this one incident that always comes to me so clearly is when i was in costco one time in another state and i was like I had that stressed out energy about me because I it was taking longer than I thought and I had to be somewhere. And so I would just, I think I was oozing that vibe and people were like in my way. <laughs> I would get more. But everyone that I encountered, they were like, oh, you go ahead, you go ahead. And they were so sweet. It was, but I finally just dropped it. It was like, you know, I am the grumpy one here who is making more unpleasant. And um, it just helped me like shift it. And then I got to the car and, somebody offered to help me put my my groceries in the truck and I was like oh my god so it was interesting how it just kind of shifted my whole day and my whole demeanor it's beautiful Peggy thank you and I love too that you brought in the practice of reflecting on kindness received or witnessed or given in the day that that's a beautiful practice to start to retrain the heart and the mind Anybody else? Stories or um, observations? Stuart, you are next. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm conscious of the kindness of strangers bringing great joy that someone does something for you which you didn't expect, which they didn't have to do. And it leaves me feeling really warm and can last for the rest of the day. It's, so I really appreciate that you mentioned that kind of thing. And I live in a small town, got nice neighbours, the town is quiet, there's very little crime. So in terms of my day-to-day -day experience, I have nothing to complain about. But then going back to the beginning of what you were saying, I look at the rulers and Sometimes I despair at how rulers rule. 
and I make this as an apolitical point that I'm not pointing at any one party, yeah. even the political party which I support behaves in ways which I think are inexcusable. So I've got this kind of dichotomy. My life is absolutely fine, but when I look at the broader picture, I'm experiencing some discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of us are. I certainly am. Your point is well taken, and... um, there can be, it can be a real art to letting that be. Observing it and figuring out where in our own lives there might be efficacy to do anything. Right. The scope seems so large. And in a way, again, this this is, it's a very different time, but 2,600 years ago, the Buddha was in a position of um, being in an environment politically where if you literally looked at a king wrong, you could lose your life. Literally. If they had a bad day, they could just order you killed for no really good reason whatsoever let alone criticizing or protesting or whatnot. And so one of the Buddha's ways of addressing it was through this power of storytelling of myth to provide examples for rulers who might be inclined to improve their behavior or warnings to those who might be enacting really terrible policies. The other way, which was in the myth as as well as in the actual Buddhist order, is to create an alternative, a very small alternative at first. The Buddha's order um, did not recognize caste back in ancient India when caste was an even bigger deal than it is today. And instead, people who joined the order were judged, if you could even call it that, but um, respected or not respected based on their ethical integrity on their way of showing up, on the depth of their practice, the depth of their wisdom, their metta. So it was this complete alternate. And um, it's maybe not satisfying when one looks at the overall course of events today. However, to me, it very much points to an alternative, that sort of old adage of start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. in these little seed beds that become fields of awareness and goodness. So that was a lot of words. I hope it somehow addressed what you were talking about, Stuart. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you so much, Don. It's really wonderful. Um, what what um, term would we use to look up more about these five qualities, the inner wellspring of well-being? So the, the phrase inner wellspring of well-being is mine, to right. summarize them. However, um, 
I haven't yet sussed out the list. Part of why I'm teaching on it today is I'll be teaching most likely a series on it at 7 a.m. in February. Mm. But I can give you the um, discourse. It's Diga Nikaya, so the long discourses, and it's number 26. And if you go to either access to insight.org or suttocentral.net, you can see a free um, English translation of it. And this is the very last section. It's at the bottom. So he goes through the whole myth, and then he does this teaching for the monks and nuns at the very end. Um, so. mm-hmm. You're welcome. Happy you're here. Anybody else? Thoughts? So in the there was a poem that came in in the chat. It's funny, I looked at that poem last night. It was not one of the ones I chose for the talk. I also like it. And um, I'm seeing if I can access it. So this um, comes from a Sangha member, and it is by Danusha Lameris. And I first found it in a book called Something Like the Way of Kindness, which is the book that's inconveniently packed away. She writes, I've been thinking about the way when you walk down a crowded aisle, people pull in their legs to let you by. Or how strangers still say, bless you, when someone sneezes, a leftover from the bubonic plague. Don't die we are saying. And sometimes when you spill lemons from your grocery bag, someone else will help you pick them up. Mostly, we don't want to harm each other. We want to be handed our cup of coffee hot and to say thank you to the person handing it, to smile at them and for them to smile back, for the waitress to call us honey when she sets down the bowl of clam chowder, and for the driver in the red pickup truck to let us pass. We have so little of each other now, so far from tribe and fire, only these brief moments of exchange. What if they are the true dwelling of the holy, these fleeting temples we make together when we say, Here, have my seat. Go ahead. You first, or I like your hat. Those little kindnesses through the day. Anyone else like to share anything? So thank you all very much for your engagement, your attention, and um, just end by dedicating the merit. I'll stick around for a few minutes if anyone wants an informal conversation on this topic. I'll be around for a little while.
So may the benefits of our practice here together ripple out through our hearts and minds and lives. And to all of the lives that we touch and all of the lives they touch, outward and outward. May all beings everywhere be safe, happy, peaceful, and free. And may our practice help create the conditions for that freedom. Thank you, everyone. Please feel free to unmute to say goodbye if you wish. Thank you, Don. That was terrific. Thank you, Thank everyone. Thank you so much, Don, and great Thank to you. see everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Don. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank, Thank you, Don. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, Don. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Peggy.